0: You're listening to Nursing Review Radio. Parents whose babies are dying could be better supported, and a core task for nurses during this time is engagement with and empowerment of parents. This is one of the key points Dr Andrew Watkins from Mercy Hospital in Melbourne raised during the Westmead International Update of Advances in Perinatal Care held in June. I'm Health Editor Dallas Bastian, and I'm joined by Andrew to discuss his presentation. Welcome, Andrew. Hi. Throughout your presentation, you shared quotes from parents who are experiencing the death of a baby, uh, including those describing interactions they had with doctors or nurses, both positive and negative. Uh, One involved a father explaining his anger that a nurse treated the baby as though he was still alive when he wasn't. Uh, How difficult is it for nurses to know how to interact with parents during a time like this and balance things like empathy, vulnerability and professionalism?
1: Well, I think it's very difficult for all of us. And I think that the most important thing is to be true to yourself and go with whatever seems right at the time. Um, the, I quoted two quotes from different parents describing approximately the same situation one, you know, where the, the dead baby was being held by a nurse and cuddled and spoken to by the nurse in a loving caring way and before being handed to the parents and one parent described very strongly seeing the visible emotion of the you know, of the nurse and the way that she acknowledged the personhood of the baby as a really important validation of that baby's life and that ba- and the importance of that baby and also validation of the scale of the experience that you know that a, a baby had died and this was a big thing the other parent in seeing roughly the same behavior in a different situation was perhaps because of cultural background or whatever was very angry that the nurse had talked to her baby his baby as if as if the baby was still alive and that you know he wasn't dead it was a he, he wasn't alive, he was a dead baby. It is completely inappropriate to talk to a dead baby like that. I wanted to hit her for her insensitivity. So, roughly the same behavior can elicit very different responses, and perhaps because of expectations of the appropriate way to handle a baby after death from different cultures and religions, or perhaps because of where a particular parent is in their in their grieving and in their in their reaching an accommodation with what's going on, which is often a fairly rapidly moving situation. Um, so it is really very hard. And the other quote I used in the talk was of a nurse talking about being overwhelmed by the parent's grief, feeling an incredible urge to say something to make things better. But feeling terrified of saying the wrong thing and making it worse and describing a feeling really real feelings of uselessness and powerlessness. And I think we've all felt like that too. So I think the main thing is to focus on listening and picking up the cues from the parents as to what they want and what they're ready for, but also focus on acknowledging the personhood of the baby and not being afraid of showing your own sadness because. Most of the time, that will be experienced by parents as a validation of their own sadness and an acknowledgement of the importance of the baby and of the importance of the experience. And inevitably, there are going to be times when that goes wrong, but you just have, you know, and that happens in any clinical counselling situation and you've just got to, one's just got to pick up the pieces and, and deal with that as honestly and sensitively as one can. But so I use those two quotes to illustrate the fact that we've all got very different expectations and we all come from very different places. And it's critically important for the carers to be open to that and really have the skill of productively questioning um, or eliciting where the parents are and holding a space in which the parents can set much of the agenda and can have control of the way their baby's death is handled, um, because in most, on most occasions, you know, they will be doing, they'll be trying harder than anybody else to make it the best way, the best thing possible for the baby. Um, and so, it's really more having for us as clinicians to have the skill to create and hold that space in which, you know, the parents and the treating team can work out a way of dealing with the baby, which is, you know, authentic to them and which makes the best of it for the baby.
0: What are some of the goals for the baby and for the parents that can be set out early on and what should a nurse keep in mind when setting these goals? It's not a
1: case really of setting out goals for the baby because they vary, very much. Um, it's more the goal for the treating team is to, as I said, create and hold that space and create a process where the family can tease out their priorities and needs in dealing with that, in dealing with that situation. So the, I think the first thing to do is to have an understanding of the scale of what parents are going through and the massive transition that they're often going through. They've, you know, they've they've commonly gone through a process where they, you know, went for a routine scan, expecting to have, you know, a baby in, you know, at uh, roughly term, and expecting to have the routine pictures. To then have the sonographer go a bit quiet, and suddenly a lot of activity, and they're then told that there's something wrong, but nobody can tell them exactly what it means. So then go through a succession of different people ultimately getting the bad news, and then having to make some hard decisions about whether to continue with the pregnancy, uh, what are the terms and conditions around treatment at birth and whether intensive care will be offered and what level of intensive care will be offered. Or a similar process when you have a baby born where you're expecting the baby to be healthy and well, the baby's not, the baby's in intensive care, things go badly and and hard decisions have to be made. And that's, for most of us, that's, well, for anybody, that's a massive transition. And so the the first thing is to have an understanding of the scale of the experience for the parents and the ability to ask the questions, to soak up their pain and to ask the questions that tease out what might be important for them with the death of their baby. Um, For some parents, it's life at all costs and they want, you know, they want... um, aggressive intensive care for you know a long time perhaps longer than some might think appropriate others are more focused on quality of life for the baby and reducing the burden of care as much as possible for the baby and so there's a need to tease out what the values of both parents and also of the extended family are and a need to also tease out what pattern of support and communication they use like for most you know, for people like me who are sort of, you know, middle-class, scientifically educated professionals, I expect that I will make the decisions about my health care and, and will, you know, have a major input into the health care of my, of my infant children and things like that. And so autonomy um, is an important thing for me because of where I come from and because it works for people like me. If you're from a culture which, if your life experience is such that every institution you've ever been involved with has treated you badly and you're used to being on the outer and you're used to being, you know, you've had past life experiences elsewhere in which you've been denied agency and put put down or whatever, then that ability to sort of health it in a healthy way say what you want for you and your baby may be compromised, particularly when you're dealing with an authority figure. Or if you come from a religious culture where you can't, the autonomous choice about choosing death is not available, then it's very hard to have a conversation with your doctor about such a choice unless it's unpicked a bit. So it's important to tease out where the parents are coming from, what their basic beliefs are, and also what they need in the way of support and decision-making mechanisms. Like, I tend to, for most of my career, have tended to assume that the two parents are the most important decision-makers, and, you know, that's obviously usually correct. But In many situations, the parents are only part of the picture. You might get a far more meaningful discussion if you involve the whole family or if you involve certain other family members or if you involve religious elders or advisors or whatever because it puts the parents in a situation in which you've respected their their way, their pattern of support, their pattern of communication and their pattern of decision-making. And then it can often open up a lot of things. So in terms of definition of goals, the really important goals are to create that process and then allow the parents to decide what's important for them and then match it up with and make sure that that's appropriate to the needs of the baby. But um, most parents obviously want their baby to live, and if that's not possible then have to work through what else might be possible because one of the things that comes up very consistently in the parent narrative literature is the need to maintain hope as a very powerful drive for most parents in this situation and of course the obvious hope is the baby will live and be healthy and happy if that is not possible we've got to find a way of communicating that without taking away hope without destroying hope because most most of us need hope in order to keep putting one foot in front of the other particularly when going through a tragic or difficult situation so it becomes a process of reframing what to hope for well okay we've accepted that he's not going to live for a long time what would you really what is critically important for you to achieve in that time what would you not like to be cheated of in that time what would you what are you most afraid of losing what do you most want to achieve so that you can reframe the parents are able to reframe what to hope for and you can then start to work on what the key priorities may be and as i said for some the key priority may still be life at all costs in which case discussions need to go on in others it might be they would like the baby to be born alive so that they can it's very commonly a priority, that they'd like the baby to be born alive so that they can have some experience of the baby, the baby can have some experience of their love. For others, it's important that certain people have got to see them, so to see the baby while the baby's alive, or to see them be together as a family with them. For other families, religious things are particularly important. For other families, the really critically important thing is that the baby should feel no pain. And so it's a process of thinking through and working through what the key priorities for the family would be and then juxtaposing that with what's possible and making it happen. And to go back to where we started, the really that process is hard to do if you haven't established the trust, established a willingness to engage on their terms and a willingness to give parents a lot more control than they may have been accustomed to having of important decisions. Because one of the other themes that come through in the narrative literature around this is one of the strongest feelings that parents have in these rapidly moving situations is a complete loss of control. Um, and that by giving that control or some of that control back to the families, you empower them to do something for their baby. You know, there's the, it's a horrible feeling when you know that your baby's going to die and there's nothing you can do to stop that happening. And the, But giving the parents control of other aspects of that, the things that can be changed, can be very empowering for families, but it can also at times be unsettling for us
0: you mentioned involving members of the family other than the parents there and in your presentation you said siblings are commonly forgotten and often marginalized in the neonatal intensive care unit why is it important that siblings are given attention and how can they be engaged during this time
1: well they're engaged they're, they're, they're involved they know what's they know what's going on they'll you know children all children are, closely wired into the family and even if they can't articulate it they've got a very clear feel for the emotional tone of the family and they'll know that something massive is going on but of course according to their development and how they interpret that will depend on their developmental stage like you know adolescent children um or the children who are nearly grown can interpret it at a you know at a fairly logical open level and can are open to fairly clear discussions of exactly what's going on and the logic of what's going on. But, for example, children and the younger children in the toddler and younger younger child age group, they will be acutely aware that something massive is going on in the family. But, of course, they're at that very self-centred stage of care, of life where everything relates to me. If they're boys, that stage goes on for a lot longer. And they'll be aware of a massive disturbance. They think it relates to them. And they will imagine what it is and their imagination will usually be worse than the reality. And the other thing, of course, is that kids, particularly younger children, thrive on attention. And there's not a lot of attention going around at that stage. And it's very easy for and sometimes necessary for parents who are being overwhelmed by the need to be present in hospital, which are not generally very toddler-friendly environments, to just get granny to look after the kids. And that's, you know, necessary and helpful on most occasions. But the downside of that is that it removes the attention and the connection between the younger child and the mother at a really vulnerable time. Um, And the ways, ways have to be found to compensate for that and to incorporate the child in in the care of what's going on with the baby and in the decision-making process. So the child can actually see that my parents are upset. It relates to the baby, which there's often... Well, I've obviously had a narrative about. And I can be involved and help in some way or do my little thing, and I'm not going to be totally marginalised because the... Younger children particularly, the worst possible thing is loss of attention. And of course, when that happens, they tend to arc up behaviourally and become more needy and demanding, which of course is just what the parents don't need at the time when they're exquisitely focused on the baby. And if that's not actively managed and they're not actively included, then it just becomes something which doesn't cause any problems for a few days, but which erupts days or weeks down the track and it's best in general to try to include the children if um, if the parents are able to if the parents are able to accommodate that
0: you also touched on some comments that might devalue a parent's grief what are some comments that should be avoided
1: it's hard to sort of put specific words or you know give specific examples without narrowing it down too much I think The themes that come out in, again, in the narrative literature are parents find a particularly upsetting upset by comments that devalue the child or which devalue their grief. And the way I sort of sum that up is that attempts to say the words that make it all better will very commonly fail because, of course, nothing you can say can ever touch something like this and can never make it a good experience. So you're doomed to fail when you try. But comments that have struck me over the years are sort of comments like, well, perhaps it was for the best, he would have been disabled anyway. Now, that's, you know, on the face of it, a fairly crass thing to say. But I've certainly had that said to parents. Or, you know, and that, of course, a comment like that devalues the child. You know, the, this isn't that the parents aren't grieving for... A disabled child or for the disability they're grieving for a child that they love so to minimize it by saying well he would have been disabled if he'd survived is not a good way to go um, and is is you know fairly reliably going to cause pain and it devalues also their grief you know well you know you'd be really sad if you had a, a normal baby that died <laughs> um, it, it, it um, and the other ones are comments that impose a meaning on the situation that may not be appropriate for the parents. Like one of the things that's come up in the literature quite commonly is, oh, well, perhaps it's for the best, he's in God's hands. Now, you know, that's all very well if you believe that. And, for example, if a, a parent who's gone through this experience is that as their way of making meaning of the situation, that's, you know, mm-hmm. entirely appropriate for them. But if I say that to them it usually reflects that that's the way I make meaning of life and I'm projecting my meaning onto them. Um, and it's often destructive. So any words that minimise the scale of what's happening are, are often doomed to fail, even if they're really well-meant and if you're we are really trying to, you know, say the words that make things better, you um, any anything that minimises the scale of their grief or the scale of the loss, um, would you? Is you know you're at great risk of um, of just firing things up. You know that you know the really the most that anyone can say is that you know this is a horrible experience that's happening to you, and I'm really really sad that it's happening to you. Now you know I'd like to work with you to find ways of salvaging something out of this for your baby and for you um, and make it a, you know, a joint project. You know, in other words, try not to deny the scale of the experience.
0: What can nurses do if an exchange does make the parent angrier or more upset? Um,
1: acknowledge that um, and find out, ask them, what was it about that that upset you? And I'm, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean it that way, um, you know, in the same way as you or I would normally um, deal with any other situation where we'd put our foot in it. You know, I th- most parents recognise our own distress, you know, as carers, and recognise their own distress, and most parents will be able to forgive and recognise that you were trying to do the right thing. Um Particularly if you acknowledge it, if you do the you know I'm wearing a white coat and I never I never acknowledge fault um, routine, well you know then that's another story. Um, you know the anger can really mount and it can come, it can often be something that all of the anger about the death of the baby is focused on or projected into. Uh, but an honest acknowledgement of you're really sorry that you've made, you know, you said something like that um, um, is the best that anyone can do. Um, but I think we need to remember that communication is 90% about listening and 10% about talking. You know, most, you know, I've grown up to think that communication is about 90% about talking and 10% about listening. Um, and But usually if you... If we give the parents the opportunity to talk about what's important to them and use the psychiatrist's technique of just sitting with parents and accepting that nothing is going to be said for two minutes or five minutes or whatever, uh, that in itself can be very powerful. because What then comes out of that silence, um, and it's incredibly hard to sit with someone who's in distress for five minutes and not say anything, um, that can often be very focused on what's important for that family at that time and then you can then pick up on that. So a lot of it is about listening to the family and creating a space and a time in which you can listen to the family.
0: And in your presentation you touched on the idea of self-care and support. Hmm. Uh, How important is this for nurses and what are some ways uh, they can invest in this?
1: Well I think it's You know, it it is, you know, critically important. Like, you know, we're vicariously traumatised by what we see. And, you know, if you're in medicine or nursing, you see a lot of nasty things. Um, And we usually, if we're any good, uh, intensely emotionally invested in the fate of our patients and what happens to them. Um, And so... When bad things happen, we tend we 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 do tend to get upset. And you know, the day I don't get upset about the things that I see is the day I should be quitting. I think that we all cope with things differently, uh, and we all need different supports. Like what works for me wouldn't work for you, or vice versa. Um, it's a responsibility of the people running the unit to have protective mechanisms in place to Recognise that those who are at the coalface of the interaction with the parents need an, a, a layer of people behind them who are often their colleagues or friends, or their unit manager or their you know consultant or whatever, who take the trouble to listen to, in the same way as we do with the parents to listen to the staff member, listen to their distress, make sure that staff members particularly in complex evolving situations which may go over three or four shifts of nursing staff or medical staff, that everybody understands the logic of what's happening. Um, Everybody's had a chance to talk about their feelings about it and, you know, any disagreements they've got, Um, and that there's clear communication about the logic of what's happening, which often goes back to good notes, so people understand it, and Creation of a space in which people can talk about these things away from the bedside. Get, we can get peer support, having a network of formal supports, and counselling and debriefing in the unit. And for people in really high-pressure jobs, um, who do a lot of this, there should be a formal mechanism. Like for example, I, for many years, have you know, have, have seen a psychiatrist as a supervisor in the same way as um, in the same way as psychiatrists do. Um, and I think we have to name that need for self-care and have a personal plan that works. You know, for me, I tend to psychiatrist things. Other people do it by, through their friend networks, other people do it by sport, physical activity or whatever, but we all have to have named it as a need and found our way to deal with it. And it's particularly the case when we're seeing things play out which we, with which we disagree or with, or with which we feel powerless to change them.
0: You also mentioned that structure and guidelines are needed to give some security and comfort for staff and institutions. Uh, Why is this important and, and what should this involve?
1: I'm the last person in the world who would ever slavishly follow any guideline. The purpose of guidelines is not to spell out the recipe book for doing things, there is a need for structure for because so many different people are involved with the, the, these situations as they play out. Like if you think about the situation of a baby who's had an antenatally diagnosed abnormality, has been managed by the obstetric team, managed by midwives, then managed by the neonatal team and and all the palliative care team over a space of you know days, weeks or perhaps months. There are multiple different shifts of nursing and medical staff involved, Um, and often in the background, there are other people who are involved or who may have less familiarity with the the issues than than those who work in neonatal intensive care. Like, for example, when you're doing palliative care, it's not uncommon for the parents to want the baby to be up on the midwifery ward. Um, because mother might have had a caesar, um, is not particularly mobile, has her own private space, which of which she's got some ownership up in the, in the midwifery ward, and it's logical, sensible, and compassionate to be able to deal with the baby up there. But if you find, you know, and I have had experiences where I've made errors with this, where I've um, negotiated a deal for palliative care upstairs in the middle free in the middle free area um, of a baby who's expected to die, who had major pain issues associated with it, um, and who needed an opiate infusion, a morphine infusion. Um, that had all been negotiated with the unit manager of the ward concerned and the shifts on at the time this was blowing up. But when the baby actually came to be born, we went to do that, and we immediately got not part of my scope of practice to manage a baby on an opiate infusion in the ward. This baby might stop breathing and die, and you know and I and it's not what we do up here. Now, on the face of it, that's not logical, like you're doing palliative care, there's an open expectation that uh, the baby is going to die. Um and it's all you know appropriate and legal. What was probably happening there, at least in part, was that we'd mucked up the communication, and not recognising that, in not recognising that, you know, ten shifts of nursing staff later, we might have a totally different group of people on, and um, that uh, who might be less comfortable with it and who therefore played the not part of my scope of practice card when they were really saying I'm profoundly uncomfortable with this and I've not been prepared. And this is where guidelines come in, in dealing with people who, or teams who may not be involved with this on a day-to-day level or with dealing with things like medical administrators and nursing administrators, particularly in centers in which palliative care may not be routine. If there's written material which makes it obvious that there's a plan, which makes it obvious with references and evidence that this this plan is legal, safe and effective, um, you create a structure which allows staff who are less familiar with the day-to-day issues to feel comfortable with doing them and to do their normal supportive role for the families, which they usually do very well, provided they're in a situation in which they feel comfortable and supported. You know, because, the, you know, there's every professional's got a medico-legal fear and that's much greater in risk managers and medical administrators who may often, and have in my experience, at sometimes said, well, look, you know, we're not having that baby here because of the medico-legal risk to the hospital. He has to go to a tertiary centre. And, of course, if the mother's just had a Caesar and the parents live 500 kilometres from the tertiary centre, it's incredibly disruptive. So anything that can be done to reduce that discomfort and disruption to care by the use of, you know, by the availability of good protocols and guidelines is is worthwhile.